0: Some of you know that for many Americans, one of the surest signs that summer is passing into the season of fall is the arrival, yet again, of another football season. And, you know, many people have quibbled over the decades as to which is better, National Football League or college football. But surely all sports fans can agree on the simple truth that college football has the best songs. The fight songs for all of these major programs have these almost legendary songs that seem to accompany the athletes into that gridiron battle. These soundtracks of sorts that punctuate the major plays, that punctuate their victories and their touchdowns along the way. Songs that sing forth of their heritage, their tradition their power, and their strength. And I tell you that because what we're coming to this morning in Habakkuk chapter 2, in a very real sense, is the fight song according to Habakkuk. If you know your prophets well in the Old Testament, you know that virtually every single one gives God's people a song to sing in the midst of a fight, the fight of faith. And along the way, what we'll see this morning in a couple key places, Habakkuk's fight song is justly famous as it declares and speaks forward the glory of Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, the book began with Habakkuk praying to God, How long, O Lord, will you continue to be indifferent to all of the injustice in Judah? Then in verse 5 of chapter 1, God speaks for the first time and says to Habakkuk, Brace yourself. It's not that I'm just about to do something. I'm already at work doing something. Brace yourself, because I'm raising up the Babylonian army. They're going to be my rod of covenant discipline upon my covenant people in Judah. That's what we saw last week in Habakkuk's second prayer. He essentially asks God, how is it that you can do this? You who are holy, you who are righteous, you who are good, how can you use an evil empire to come against your people. And so we began last week to study God's second response, which began in verses 2-5 through of chapter 2 essentially with God saying to Habakkuk, hey, write down this vision. This vision is clear. So easy that someone running past it can understand its truth. This vision is certain. It may take a while for it to come to pass, but it will indeed come to pass. This vision is central to the life of God's people as it says the righteous will live by faith. In the midst of waiting on God to act on behalf of His people, in the midst of waiting on God to answer all of the apparent struggles and suffering in the world, God's people are to live by faith. And what he does in this week as his second response continues in our, our passage is he puts a lips on the song, or he puts a song on the lips of his people. It's as though he says, hey, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your suffering, what you need most is a weapon that is little more than a melody of truth. That God's people in the midst of their hardship are to be singing people. Singing the truth of who God is. Singing the truth of what God plans to do. And so what we're going to see this morning is we've just got a song before us that sings forth the judgment that's soon going to come to Babylon. So as we work through the passage, we'll try to answer this by the end. Uh, You want to think, how is it that God means for this fight song of woe to Babylon, how is it that he means for that song to answer Habakkuk's struggle? How is it that he means for that song to be a help to his hurting people? So when you tend to find yourself in affliction and hardship, I wonder what your immediate response is. I wonder if you're a person who, sings to, who seems to sing hope louder than the unbelief. Or, as we've mentioned a couple times in recent weeks, is it true of you that it seems to be more common to complain about God's sovereignty rather than trust in what He is doing, mysterious as it may be in your life? And so a student says, we're working through this passage. There's a truth that I want you to pay attention to, that all of the prophets are expert in giving to God's people. They seem to say over and over, almost always by the end of the book, Justice may seem, injustice may seem like it's going to conquer, but God's justice will always win in the end. And that's what he is helping Habakkuk to see and us to see once again this morning. So kids, did you notice that little three-letter word that showed up five times, starting five different sections in this song? It says word, woe, W-O-E, woe. And so we've got five stanzas in our fight song. We just kind of want to work through each one and see how we can learn from them by the end. And first of all, we have woe to the plunderer. Look at verse 6. God says to Habakkuk, Shall not all of these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? So we want to get the characters right in this song. We want to understand the audience that is in mind of Yahweh at this moment. Who are these that he speaks of? Who's the him that he's talking about? Well, it's pretty simple if you just look at what we left off, where we left off last week in verse 5. You see there God says, he, in context, that's Babylon. So Babylon gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So the nations and the peoples, that's the these of verse 6. The hymn is Babylon. Uh, what God is saying is that all of these nations, no matter how small or large they may be, all of these people, no matter how insignificant or significant they may be, these nations and peoples that Babylon has conquered. Well, they are going to sing a song against this evil empire named Babylon. And we know it's a song against them, a song of judgment because of the next word that shows up in verse 6, woe to him. Woe to him. So what do you know about this word woe? How would you define it? Hey, Think about it. How would you describe A woe. Well, in the ancient world, it was originally used in a funeral. It was a song of lament. You would cry out a woe for the loss of a loved one. You would cry out a woe to give expression to the grief at the depths of your soul. But I don't think we need to see this coming woe against Babylon with a tone of sadness. This is a satire that's really before us in the song that God is putting on the lips of his people. Because, of course, he's using the language in verse 6 previously of taunts and scoffing and riddles. It's to be a parody of a funeral dirge. They are to sing over Babylon, even in the midst of their highest might and power. They're to sing a song over Babylon as if they are dead men walking. Because that's exactly what they are in God's providence and sovereignty. Woe to him. Woe to the plunderer. Look how verse 6 continues. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and for how long and loads himself with pledges. If you know anything about the Babylonian Empire, any time that they would come in and overthrow another empire or come and crush another city, uh, they would always take plunder for themselves as ancient empires always seem to do. They would take everything and everyone without any compassion or care whatsoever to what they were grabbing for themselves. And even if they left some small group of people behind in the conquered vassal state, what they would do is they would enact upon them such taxation that it would still cripple the country, which is what this language at the end of verse six is talking about, loading himself with pledges. They're gathering all this stuff from the nations, but you'll see in verse seven, That it's not as though that stuff really belongs to Babylon. It's not as though the people really belong to Babylon. They've just been loaned to Babylon. Soon enough, God says, those nations, those peoples are going to call back the debt. The creditors are going to come calling. The spoilers, they themselves are going to be spoiled. The plunderers, they themselves are going to be plundered. And they're going to tremble because of it for notice verse 8. You have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to the plunderer. Number two, woe to the empire builder. You'll see in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. If you know anything about American history, the late 1800s are often referred to as the Gilded Age. And there's a group of people, a group of men, that seem to encapsulate the spirit of the age with unique power. They're often called the robber barons, names of which still ring down so many decades and well over a century. Later, men like Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan. There's also Cornelius Vanderbilt, and John Rockefeller. Rockefeller himself, by the end of the decade, essentially was in control of 90% of all of the oil in America. And if you know anything about the robber barons, they built their financial empire on greediness and ruthlessness. And this is exactly what happened with Babylon so many centuries before, and God isn't happy about it. They were building their empire, what the text is going to go on to say, on slave labor. And the slave labor building cities, it wasn't unusual at this time. You can think all the way back to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus. How is it that Egypt is building their temples, their city, their pyramids? Well, it's on the backs of slave labor, slaves that were God's people, the nation of Israel. But the problem here is not just their slave driving of their conquered people, it's the fact of what verse 9 says that they are going to basically do it with fullness of evil, that they have cut off many peoples. They have forfeited their life in doing so. So all of this beauty in Babylon that would have been present, it was an ancient wonder of the world. Some of you know about the hanging gardens in Babylon. Wide, well-kept streets. A 136-foot-wide wall. So wide in fact, obviously then so strong, you could take four chariots and line them up side by side and they could race along down the city wall. On the outside of that wall would have been bricks inscribed on each one of them on the outside with the king's name, King Nebuchadnezzar. Even the king called his palace the marvel of mankind. It was a city, it was an empire that was built on slave labor. It was a city and an empire. What verse 9 tells us was meant to keep the dynasty safe and secure from all alarm. But what's going to happen is woe will fall upon them. For you'll notice in verse 10, at the end, they have forfeited their life. Even the stones will cry out from the walls and the beam from the woodwork respond. If the stones could talk, if walls could speak, They would sing forth the evil and violence of Babylon. And so woe goes to the plunderer, to the empire builder. Number three, woe to the murderer. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Uh, This language here, uh, founds a town, builds a city with blood. It's just a Hebrew idiom for murder. Now what they're doing is driving these conquered peoples with such evil, with such violence, with such ruthlessness that they're essentially killing all of them in the process. And God, of course, is going to hear that blood as it cries out to Him. So it's all going to come for nothing is what verse 13 says. Notice what God says, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? You know, kids, we've said the last two weeks that what Habakkuk is teaching us, among many things, but in every single part of the prophecy, is teaching us that God is sovereign. And you remember what we've tried to say simply God's sovereignty is? What does it mean that God's sovereign? Well, He's in charge and He's in control of all peoples. He's in charge and in control of everything and everyone. To such a degree, what verse 13 is saying is all personal efforts to pursue personal glory in the hands of this sovereign God, are going to come to nothing. It's just going to be fuel for the fire, is what the text says. Personal empires built on personal strength and personal wisdom and personal knowledge are all going to come for naught. And so what Habakkuk 2, in particular, keeps telling us is there are only two ways you can live. You can live the way of puffed up pride, trusting and even worshipping, as Babylon did, your own strength. Or you can live in the way of righteousness, which is the way of faith that submits to God's sovereignty even in the darkest night. And so verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is actually language that's quite popular, quite well known at this time in the nation of Judah. It first showed up all the way back in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, verse 21. It returns in the prophecy of Isaiah that we read earlier from Isaiah 11, verse 9, which was at least 100 years before Habakkuk's time. And then it shows up again. And what it is here to tell us is it's not the glory of Babylon that's going to rule over the earth. It's the glory of Yahweh that will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And it's striking even the language here of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord because it's almost identical to truth that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I believe it's verse 6. That in the face of Jesus Christ is the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, reminding us that there is a time coming. There is a time that certainly will arrive when all nations, all peoples... Will come and know that Jesus Christ Himself is Lord. You can think of another text, Philippians chapter 2, where we're told that because of God's pleasure in his Son, he exalted his Son to His right hand and gave him the name that is above every name. Why? So at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Where? In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Submit to the King who reigns over all peoples. The glory of Babylon won't triumph in the end. It'll be the glory of Yahweh. Woe to the plunderer, the empire builder, the murderer. And fourthly, woe to the debaucher. Earlier this week at dinner, we were having a conversation with our children. It's one of those conversations you seem to have as Christian parents along the way. Somehow we were suddenly talking about this very random Old Testament story. And if you know your Old Testament well enough, you know that it's full of all these kind of shocking and surprising occurrences that go on in the life of God's people. And one of the children was essentially saying that can't possibly be true because nothing so crazy as that could have ever really happened. And then we began to talk about, of course, how, yeah, it's true. That really is what took place. And by the end of this exchange, one of the children across the table just looked at me with this kind of face of baffled belief. Oh, my, that is so crazy. And there's a sense in which you can read the Bible and forget that it's not just this glossy document of acceptable truth. It presents the reality of evil in all of its darkness, in all its vileness, which is exactly what comes to us in this fourth woe. Because notice what we're told in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, you who pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So how careless, how mean, how vile, how evil were the Babylonians? They're likened here to a person that just keeps feeding another person alcohol, wine to get them drunk and drunk and drunk to such a point where they just denude themselves and are left to open public shame. Such was Babylon's sin against the nations. And even one of the sins that the Bible talks about over and over about the Babylonians is their love for wine, the tendency that the nation had towards drunkenness. And so you'll see in verse 16 that soon their glory is going to give way to shame, even the end of verse 16, or I guess the middle part of verse 16, essentially is God telling Babylon, go do to yourself what you keep doing to others. Even so, full of Hatred were they for the other nations. Notice what God says in verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. And then you just get this refrain in verse 17 that was already mentioned in verse 8. Now you need to know something about Lebanon to know what God is actually after in verse 17. Lebanon in the ancient world was this kind of treasure of cedar and pine trees. That's why they show up all the time, even in the Psalms, as this place that was very fertile, full of this incredible creation. And God is saying that Babylon has wiped through Lebanon and just destroyed everything in their wake, not just people, but trees, even domesticated animals have vacated from the land. It would be akin to going to California, to the great redwood forests, and just saying, hey, we're just going to wipe it all out just because we can. So great was their sin. So great was their hatred of all other nations that what they are doing is leaving cities naked of people, forests naked of trees, the land naked of animals. Total and complete desolation is what Babylon leaves in their wake. And what God is saying is, soon that glory you're receiving will become your very shame. So the fifth woe is woe to the idolater. Look at verse 18 and 19. He always says, what prophet is an idol when, it makes, when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise, can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath in it at all. Now, you may know that the prophets were masters at mocking idolatry. So much of their ministry was consumed with calling God's people back to the Lord, calling them to repent of their idolatry. And the way that they often try to do that is to expose what should be the common sense stupidity of worshiping an idol. Okay, this is essentially what the prophets are doing Yahweh's doing here in verse 18 and 19. Hey, you made that thing. Why do you think it could do anything for you? When was the last time you heard that thing open its mouth and speak to you? How could they ever guide you? When was the last time you saw that thing move? Why do you think it could have any power to help you? And yet, you're bowing down to it as though it actually is a deity worthy of your worship. It's trying to expose the foolishness of idolatry unless we become even puffed up in our own pride and think, hey, we don't have any such idols at home or expecting to speak to us, do something for us. Maybe just recognize that in our day, in our time, we just are more sophisticated in our idolatry. But we often are prone to idolatry nonetheless. What the New Testament calls covetousness. Longing and living for something, which the New Testament text says repeatedly, covetousness is idolatry. What is that one thing, that person, that position, that place, or that power that you cannot possibly live without? you do that kind of honest self-examination, you begin to poke and prod in your own heart to discover where you might be bound to idols. And you didn't realize it before. Woe to the idolater is what God says. And so look at how the song concludes in verse 20. But the Lord, the true God of the universe, is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. So what is the proper response To a God who is sovereign and full of justice that will always win out and prevail in the end. It's the silence here of reverence. And if you've never known what that exactly looks like, you could go on later today and read Revelation chapter 6, 7, and 8. Because what you get in Revelation 6 through 8, the last book of the Bible, is the Lamb of God opening up these steps. What you find in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, is that for 30 minutes, after the seventh seal is opened, for 30 minutes, the Bible says, all of heaven goes quiet. Not a word is spoken. And wouldn't you wonder what that would be like in the heavenly places as God's judgment is announced upon all nations and the only proper response among the glorified beings there in the Father's presence is silence. But we do know, don't we, that The temple that was in Jerusalem at this time, soon to be destroyed just a couple decades later, it of course was rebuilt and then destroyed again in A.D. 70. We know from the New Testament that the temple now is found in none other than the Son of God whose name is Jesus Christ. He is God's dwelling place with man. It's in and through Jesus Christ that God is with His people. How is it that we are to remain silent and reverent before the Lord? Rightly in faith looking to Him Well, we live by faith in Jesus Christ, who is indeed the Lord sitting in His temple. And the only proper response to God's promised judgment is to keep silence before Jesus Christ. So how then does a song of five woes against the nation of Babylon encourage Habakkuk in the midst of his struggle to understand God's sovereign dealings towards Judah? How is it that the promised judgment upon an evil empire is actually meant to keep him steadfast waiting for the Lord's word to come to fruition. Well, we've already said one of the reasons. One of the reasons it's reminding us that evil will never triumph in the end. No matter what Habakkuk seems to be thinking God is doing with Babylon, God is very much aware of their evil, Babylon's sin, and soon they are going to be overthrown for it. But more so, depending, or at least descending from what we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 4, what does it mean for the righteous? to live by faith in the midst of the darkness of doubt, in the struggle of suffering. Oftentimes, it means singing a song of faith that God will bring about His final purpose for the good of His people. Even as we're going to see next week, you still don't really know what that's exactly going to look like. Does your faith tend to sing in the midst of your suffering? Does your hope find this ringing anthem in the midst of your uncertainty. God's judgment will fall upon Babylon. So Habakkuk, all the nations, all the peoples are said to soon sing a song of triumph, a fight song of faith. Now I know students, many of you are already out of school for the summer or soon to be out of school for the summer. So I wonder what is on your summer bucket list If your upbringing was anything like mine, somewhere along that list might be something you're really not looking forward to, which is a summer reading list. And I remember one year reading this classic book, having to read uh, this classic book that starts out with 12 words that may be the most famous 12-word intro to an English novel. It was the best of times. And it was the worst of times, which is Charles Dickens. A Tale of Two Cities, which is the story about life in London and Paris during the French Revolution. And in ways we do need to realize the book of Habakkuk is a tale of two cities. There's the city of God and the city of man. It's a tale of two empires, the empire of Yahweh and the empire of Babylon. It's a tale of two ways of living, the way of puffed up pride and the way of faith. As far as we begin to close from this fight song, what I want us to begin to see is how it does indeed point us so clearly To the Savior that is to come. How it so clearly articulates for us the central truths of the good news that we call the gospel. So the first thing you want to see, that we must see from this song, is that God will judge the wicked. What this song is announcing to us is wickedness will be judged at the end of all things. And what you don't know, maybe you do, is often throughout Scripture, to live in sin is said to be in the city of Babylon. So if you fast forward again all the way to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, in chapter 18 of Revelation, you'll find this final destruction of the city of Babylon prophesied. And it's all those who are outside of Christ that belong to Babylon. So you might be in here this morning, and you're outside of Christ. What you need to know is this is the fate that will await you should you remain in unbelief. But you may even look at the text. Kids, you might look at it and say, well, I'm not like Babylon. I'm not murdering slaves. I'm not building an empire, plundering the nations. But if you just put it in its pure spiritual sense, yes, we are often, aren't we, prone to greediness, covetousness, trampling over others, prone to idolatry, prone to want to shame others and delight in their shortcomings and failures. And such sins are indeed wicked actions that deserve God's judgment God will judge the wicked. That's what this song is telling us. You may know the name D.L. Moody, who's one of the most famous American evangelists in church history, particularly in the late 1800s. And he was once in the midst of this 10-day preaching revival and evangelistic campaign in Chicago. And over the course of the first few days, thousands of people were, were coming to listen to his preaching. And one night, he recalled how he had left his hearers dangling over the pit of hell as he had preached this hellfire and brimstone sermon. He said, hey, come back tomorrow uh, because there I will declare unto you the roadblock that God has placed on the way to judgment. Well, that night what happened was the great Chicago fire that destroyed the entire city, that destroyed many people that had just listened to D.L. Moody proclaim God's judgment upon wicked sinners. And after that, D.L. Moody resolved never again to preach judgment without quickly pointing them to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Because this text actually does that for us. It doesn't tell us only that God will judge the wicked. It does remind us also that God saves the wicked in His Son, Jesus Christ. And here's how we know that. Go back to verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. God says this to Babylon, the cup, is in the Lord's right hand, will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. So fast forward several centuries to the garden that we call Gethsemane. You remember Jesus there is sweating blood in His anxiety over what awaits Him at the cross. And you remember what He prayed? Father, take this what? Cup from Me, but not My will be done, but Yours be done. The cup of judgment, the cup of wrath, All of this woe that would indeed fall upon Babylon is but a small taste of the cup that Jesus was made to drink. A cup of God's wrath for the trillions and trillions of sins, for the billions of God's people. In love, God placed that cup in His Son's hands and said, you must drink it. And in love, the Son took the cup and what did He do? He drank it all the way to the bottom so that people who are wicked people who have sinned, nations that have fallen, can find hope, can find redemption, salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, for us in the age of the new covenant, living in light of Habakkuk chapter 2, what it means is in the midst of suffering and struggle, we sing a fight song of faith. Of faith in Jesus Christ, who drank that cup to the bottom, so that we who deserve judgment might instead find saving grace fall upon us. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank You that Christ Jesus is our hope, that He is our redemption, that He is indeed all grace and mercy to those who live by faith. Father, we thank You for Your sovereign care and kindness over us. We thank You for Your wisdom that guides us and leads us even through the times in which we do not know what exactly it is that You are doing for our good or how You will do anything in our life and bring good from it. So Lord, give us a song in the night. Give us lips that want to praise you. Give us hearts that delight to sing forth your justice and your sovereignty. As it always does indeed lead us to the reverence. As it leads us to silence. As it leads us to steadfast faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.